for something slightly different, I'd like to start by asking you to watch a very famous scene from a very famous movie, which is the opening Dawn of Man sequence from Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I'll begin by just asking you to watch this scene, which is about 10 minutes long, and then I will explain why I think it's relevant to our understanding of René Girard. So as you're watching it, you might want to think a little bit about you know, your own theories as to what the, the connection might be. But um, once it is finished, I will offer my perspective on that question. So here is the movie.
the obvious connection between this scene and Girard's work is an interest in the subject of what Girard calls hominization, which is, in other words, how humans evolved into their current state as cultural beings, as what he would say is an identical term, religious beings, and also as technological beings, right? So how did humans evolve into what we know of as humans today? Well, this scene from Kubrick's 2001 is probably one of the most famous attempts, at least in film, to represent this process. And it takes us from humans as essentially just one animal in the African savanna competing for resources to humans in the final sequence who are tool-making and tool-using creatures, right, who, as we see in the, the final shot, end up being able to create spaceships, right? So there are a couple of similarities between uh, Kubrick's account and Girard's account. The most obvious one would be that in both accounts, violence and the danger of uncontrolled violence plays a crucial role, right? So in other words, this process by which human beings become something like what they are today passes through a violent crisis in which they reach some kind of deadlock of conflict and then resolve that deadlock of conflict. So as we know from Girard, um, his account of it is that they do this through this sort of spontaneous discovery of the scapegoat mechanism, right? That they reach a point of irresolvable conflict that threatens to bring about the annihilation of the entire group. And this means that the only way to resolve this is by polarizing their violence around a single victim which discharges it from the group and provides temporary relief, right? So we know this story by now. So it would seem that Kubrick's is rather different, right? And it's interesting to note that, um, you know, this is, obviously this is Hollywood, so it's in a sense a kind of attempt to create a myth, I would say. And so I think it's important to regard this story as a kind of modern myth that serves a function similar to many of the ancient and archaic ones that Girard was so interested in. In other words, it, it attempts to provide a narrative that is on one hand kind of imaginatively satisfying, but at the same time uh, does, you know, is not and perhaps does not pretend to be true to the facts, right? So I would say this is a simple sense in which Girard and Kubrick are opposed, even though they have certain similarities in how they imagine this process occurring which is that Kubrick's um, account is clearly a mythical one. How so? Well, it literally involves a sort of um, supernatural process, right? So what happens? Well, in order for humans to reach the next level of their evolution, right, there's the intervention of a completely external outside force, right? Which is a kind of, or is perceived by them as a kind of godlike force, right? So they're, you know, on the savannah, sleeping, minding their own business, and suddenly this strange monolith 
um, appears among them, seemingly drop down from the sky, right? And it's through this, uh, the influence, the strange and uncanny impact of this intervention, right, from the completely from the outside, right, of, of a kind of transcendence, right, an absolute, um, a, a sort of higher, a clear higher power, right, that transcends them in its, in its knowledge and power, intervenes and seems to cede the intellectual capacity to um, understand and make use of tools, right? And so there's a sort of circularity here, right? Which if you're familiar with um, stories like Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods and the more popular TV show Ancient Aliens of recent times, basically in order to explain how humans become um, technological intelligent beings, you posit the intervention of some other race of already technological and intelligent beings who come in and gift us with the tools that we need to, um, both both inner tools and outer tools that we need to evolve in this direction, right? So of course the problem with this um, proposition is that it's circular, right? It, it simply asserts the existence of some intelligent being who already exists elsewhere, who um, inserts itself or insert themselves into the human um, scene and bestow the ability to evolve in this direction, right? So th that's essentially what Kubrick is doing here, right? And again, it's, it's I would say, a clearly mythical um, construct because it must posit a god or the equivalent of a god who intervenes in order to enable this process, right? So it's, you know, it's a... It's, it's clearly not an attempt at a scientific account of this process by any means, right? It, it simply kind of throws up its hands and suggests, well, the only way we can explain this is by imagining the existence of some outside transcendent being who comes in and equips us with the tools that we need, okay? So this is a Hollywood movie. Again, it's a very famous and influential one, and I would say that it is offering a kind of myth, right, of this process. And it's you know, posed in vaguely Darwinian language, but um, it's fundamentally mythical, right? And so it's important to note again that Girard is always trying to debunk mythology, right? He's always trying to show something that's going on beneath mythology that the myth is covering up and is unable to disclose. So my suggestion here would be that we can think about the scene in a similar way. That is to say, we can treat it as a myth and analyze it using the same sort of methodology that Girard would use. Okay, so one thing that stands out to me here is that there's an obvious divergence in terms of how um, Girard and Kubrick um, present this conflict they see as, as primordial and fundamental to this process of harmonization. But they, um, they don't quite present it in the same way, right? So for Girard, it's, um, it, it, it begins as potentially a conflict. I mean, it begins as a, uh, this conflict created by acquisitive mimesis. One person wants something, then another person wants it. And um, therefore, they come into conflict, right? This, the, the object itself is somewhat indifferent, right? It could be um, they're both, uh, you know, attempting to mate with the same person. 
Um, or it could be something else. It could be a, a physical belonging, um, whatever. But the point is, um, in Kubrick, it would seem that there's a, an implication of scarcity, right? There's this one waterhole, and there are these two seeming groups of otherwise identical proto-humans who are both trying to use the watering hole. And so the implication appears to be that, well, there's only so many resources to go around. So in order to evolve in a Darwinian way, um, one group has to achieve some kind of advantage that will allow them to take control of the watering hole. Now, on the other hand, to be a bit skeptical here, there is something a little bit um, unsatisfying in this implicit explanation, right? Which is that when we first see this watering hole, it's being used by species um, other than the proto-humans who are using it, and they seem to be sharing it peaceably. In other words, there does not seem to be sufficient scarcity to, um, to create conflict between the humans and the non-humans, or the proto-humans and the non-human species that are, that are drinking from the same watering hole, right? So in other words, um, is scarcity itself a sufficient explanation of this conflict? Well, if not, then perhaps the, um, the Girardian explanation might come in handy, because it could suggest that this conflict is in fact um, something that we do not merely arrive at because of the scarcity of the objects, but rather the objects become a pretext for a mimetic escalating conflict in which the, um, the, the objects become secondary, right? So, you know, we can't say that Kubrick exactly shows us that, but he does, you know, in some ways show us by adding the other species in that there's something unsatisfying about this surface level scarcity reading. So then I would like to return to the scene where the conflict comes to a head. And I'm so I'm skipping over actually the sequence of... So if let's say we leave out the whole um, sequence of transcendent um, intervention by this monolithic um, entity seemingly deposited by a god or godlike being, and instead we just skip ahead to this scene where the conflict reaches a boiling point, right, which is for Gerard the crucial moment. So let's look back at this scene just briefly.
I hope you can see that there are actually a few interesting convergences with the Girardian account of harmonization, even though there are also some obvious divergences. And so I'll point out just three things that stood out to me here. First, this opening scene, we have something like this crisis of undifferentiation, right? Where it's a sort of war of all against all. On one hand, it seems that there are these two factions of some sort, right? Although, you know, this isn't clearly defined, but, you know, there do seem to be these kind of polarized factions. But we have a scene of, of complete chaos, right, in which the supposed object of conflict, the watering hole, has sort of receded from view. And instead, what we simply have are these um, these sort of implacable enemies all facing off against each other, right? And the entire group is consumed with it, right? And there's so there's sort of a violent deadlock. And then we have, and this is my second point, so we, so we have something like that, right? This, this situation of doubles, right? Of, of violent rivalrous doubles um, who have entered into implacable antagonism. And then what is it that breaks the deadlock? Well, I think, again, the surface reading would be that suddenly this technology of the bone weapon is introduced, and that is what breaks the deadlock. So that's, I think, the, the sort of seemingly intended reading that Kubrick is presenting us with. But I think there is another interesting detail here, which is that um, when the, the particular um, antagonist crosses the watering hole and thus falls victim to the, um, the attack... It's interesting to note that when he falls, um, it's, first of all, everyone um, on that side seems to participate in the killing. So it does become a collective murder, right? So in other words, everyone um, on that side of the watering hole almost ritualistically comes around and hits him once, right? So it's not just the one person who instigates the attack, who participates in it, it's everyone who has been um, drawn in by this uh, monolith and its influence participates, right? So that's interesting, right? There's something that goes beyond the sort of practical effectiveness of weaponry there, right? Because it is striking that all of these different people come in to participate in the, the murder, right? So it is a collective murder, right? And in that sense, it connects us to Girard as well as Freud and... Nietzsche, both of whom were also interested in this motif of the collective murder. And then you might say, okay, but the other people on the other side are um, are not uh, participating in it, so it's not unanimous. Well, it's true, but they are supposed to be the on this in the same faction as the victim, and yet they don't come to his defense, right? In other words, they they there's sort of this formation where they're all standing around and either actively or passively participating in this murder, right? And so that's that's another odd feature of this, right? Um, so if we assume, just to be as literal and sort of rationalistic as possible here, if we assume that this is a new technology, that no one's seen it before, um, why don't, if these people are on, if these other 
proto-humans are on the side of the one who's being murdered, why don't they rush in to try to defend him? Maybe they don't know how effective the technology is yet at that point because they haven't experienced it. Um, why aren't they participating? Why aren't they, if, if they're not um, participating in the murder, why aren't they... Um, why aren't they defending their their compatriot, right? So there's some way that they seem to have been transfixed and polarized um, away f- from their seeming recipro- need to reciprocate on behalf of their um, kinsmen or whatever you want to call him. And instead, they're 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 paralyzed there, right? They're just watching, right? And so we do have the situation of a collective murder murder and a circle that is gathered around, right? third point is simply that we have a generation of transcendence or the sacred through this process. How? Well, what is the culminating moment of this uh, sequence? After the collective murder has been achieved and the groups have been pacified, there's no longer conflict. The um, sort of, we could say, priest-like figure who has carried out this murder and invited others to participate, then hurls his weapon into the air and it becomes a spaceship, right? So there's a kind of loop, right? We're back to these sort of godlike spaces of transcendence of the earth. And what's taken us there is this act of collective murder, right? So, in other words, we do have a kind of genesis or generation of transcendence or the sacred through this process, which turns out to be identical with the genesis or generation of technology. But, of course, that was already the case with how it was conceived in the first place, right? Technology was conceived through this contact with this transcendent, godlike being from outside of the sort of earthly realm. So, in this way, we can kind of read this uh, sequence against the grain and find something that resembles considerably um, a Girardian account of collective murder as the key process through which hominization occurs, in other words, through which humans become social and cultural beings in the form that we know them today. So this could also take us back to the sequence with the arrival of the monolith, because I think there's an important thing that we can notice about that, having had the discussion that we've just had. So let me just show you a still frame of that scene once again, followed by a still frame of another scene. So in that sequence, you should have noticed that I reversed the order. In other words, I took the scene of collective murder that occurs towards the end of the sequence and put it first and then followed it with the scene of the monolith. So why do these two still frames seem relevant in connection to each other? Well, because structurally they're very similar, right? They include a a figure in the middle and then the rest of these proto-human apes sort of gathered around it in more or less in a circle, right? And these are also the two moments of transcendence, right? The first where the transcendent arrives among them from above. The second where the transcendent is sent out from them up into the sky, right? In the form of the bone, which then uh, cuts to the scene of the spaceship. 
So these are the two moments of transcendence, and they're also the two moments of collective unity, right? Where the group comes together around something, right? So if we simply reverse the order, in other words, if instead of positing that transcendence arrives first, and then generates this process by which uh, the transcendent is, is reproduced at the end, if instead we simply reverse the sequence, right, and imagine the collective murder happens first, followed by the um, the invention or generation of transcendence, right, which is embodied in this monolith, right? And so for Girard, um, you know, the first monuments and pyramids and things like that were the marking the sites of these murder, these... Uh, collective murders, right? They were essentially tombs, right? Which, which covered up, but also memorialized this event, this generative event. And it was from there the transcendence is generated. So in other words, if we, somewhat in the manner of a Girardian reading of myth, if we um, scramble up the sequence and <laughs> essentially posit that um, at the center of the sequence is a collective murder, from which the gods or the transcendent is generated, then we have something more that more realistically represents something like this process of harmonization. So I thought this would be interesting because it points to Girard's ambition, and particularly to his indirectly to his relationship to another important intellectual mediator who I mentioned before, who is Darwin, right? And so in a sense, we could say that Girard is attempting, like Kubrick in a different register, to sort of continue the story that Darwin offered the most compelling and scientifically powerful version of, right? By explaining how humans became, again, social beings, cultural beings, and technological beings. So um, I do think that it's also striking that Kubrick made this film in 1969, which was really the same moment when Girard was beginning to write about these issues, culminating in Violence and the Sacred, which appeared in 1972. So uh, although there is more to be said on this relationship to Darwin, perhaps more directly, I would refer you there to the book Evolution and Conversion, where there's a long and interesting discussion of it in a series of interviews. So if you're curious about that, um, relationship between Girard and Darwin, that's probably the best place to point you. <laughs>